From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of LPL Market Signals. Jeff Bookbinder here, your host for this week, and with my friend and colleague, Adam Turnquist. Adam, how are you today? Happy hey, Monday. how are you doing? Thanks for having me back. You got it. You got it. Um, it has nothing to do with the fact that most of the team's out of town. <laughs> I really wanted to be on here with you. So uh, it is your it is your turn. Uh, so, um, yeah, I got a, I mean, got a little more full agenda maybe than we normally do. Um, so here's what we're going to talk about uh, today for the next half hour. Of course, recap the markets as always. I think my number one takeaway from last week's market action is just, wow, the market's really resilient in the face of all of these bank stress headlines. Um, so, of course, Adam, you're the technician. So um, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the technical with for the S&P. And the um, December indicator, which we mentioned here before, but um, now that we're getting really close to the end of the quarter, it's uh, Monday, March 27th, 2023, as we record this, that December indicator is getting a lot more uh, interesting. Looks good. Um, The um, Next, we're going to just promote the weekly market commentary on LPL.com, which is who's to blame for Silicon Valley Bank's failure. Uh, wrote that with Quincy Crosby. Uh, finally, of course, this is your thing, Adam. We'll talk charts and then uh, preview the week ahead. Uh, so let's start here with the um, recap of, of last week's equity market action. And there are some interesting things here. So I, I already kind of gave you the the main headline, right, which is, um, you know, a good week despite all the news flow around around the banks, which extended to Friday, right? We had Deutsche Bank pop up as a potential concern, uh, double-digit sell-off intraday in that stock. Thankfully, today, the, the stock's come back a little bit, and the market seems to be more comfortable with that story. Uh, but nonetheless, solid week, S&P 500 up 1.4%, uh, and um, NASDAQ fared a little bit better, Dow fared a little bit worse. Um, that's a second straight up week for stocks. Um, Europe up also, so it was kind of a, I don't know, called a global coordinated uh, rally here last week for um, uh, for Europe. We had, uh, you know, mostly gains in uh, Asia as well. Um, and then on the sector side, um, I'll let you weigh in on this, Adam. I mean, the big winner was communication services. You've highlighted this, you know, in recent um, investment committee meetings that the technical picture for communication services gotten quite a bit better. So big winner up 3.4%, of course, as pretty much always the case with that sector, Google and Facebook are doing most of the work there, or Meta and Alphabet. Um, so that that was the big uh, the big winner. The market certainly getting a little excited about the potential action against TikTok, which would help its competitors in that sector. Um, you want to comment on any anything there, or any other sectors you want to you want to highlight in terms of last week's performance that that you think uh, are especially interesting? Yeah, at least at the sector level, it was largely offensive driven. When you look at the performance last week, you can see utilities and real estate underperforming, which is pretty remarkable considering the backdrop that we were in with banking turmoil continuing to take place. You know, even the financial sector managed to close in the green last week. So going back to that resilient theme, I think it's pretty impressive. Overall buying pressure in terms of the weekly advancers, they did outpace declining shares by right around two to one last week. So it was pretty widespread in terms of 
total um, total stocks advancing. And then one thing that that's not on here that was at least newsworthy or or worth highlighting, I think, is just the VIX or the volatility index that was down 15% last week. Did close below the 200-day moving average. I've always looked at that 200-day as kind of a barometer for risk on or risk off. So when you're below it, it does suggest just in a simple term that you know we're moving back to more of a, a risk on environment. So it's notable to see that drop last week on the VIX. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, path of least resistance probably still higher here uh, at this point. So let's go to uh, fixed income and commodities. I mean, in looking at these um, bond returns, I mean, my first thought is, wow, what a great, you know, great march. <laughs> and if uh, if rates just stay where they are, you could end up with, you know, high single digit kind of returns across much of the bond market. So, um, you know, bonds, clearly the move down in rates um, recently supported by the bank stress, right? And which is translated into the market pricing in uh, fewer Fed rate hikes. And then you've also had obviously an improvement in inflation. Um, so rates down, of course, is bonds up. That is nice to see, especially after the pain that we experienced in the bond market last year. Uh, turning to commodities, um, the you know we've highlighted metals recently as having some nice charts at them. Um, we uh, you know in particular like precious metals related investments right here. Uh, it's not just technicals; it's also um, the potential for a weak dollar. Uh, which we'll get to uh, in a minute. Anything to add there? Yeah, I think just lastly on energy, it's been of a a bit of a disappointment. You can see it's kind of dragging down the the broader commodity index, especially crude oil. Um, just over the last you know last several weeks, we've seen crude oil take out some key support levels, and um, same thing with natural gas. That's been kind of this falling knife on the technical side. So I think a lot of investors are looking for a bottom in that energy complex. Haven't quite seen it yet, but we're definitely seeing extremes when you look at overall positioning in terms of the futures market. I know I noticed last week that the short positions among managed money or speculative positions, they actually reached a four-year high on crude oil last week. So that's, you know, when you get to those extreme levels, those are often contrarian points in terms of positioning. So we'll see if that has any indication of, of crude finally finding a bottom here. Yeah, I have uh, noticed a little bit of an uptick in, in crude oil lately. We probably want stable oil, not much higher oil, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, just from you know the perspective of the economy, but from the perspective of the S&P 500, uh, certainly energy matters. So let's, um, let's move on. Look at the S&P 500. Certainly impacts people, investors, more than, than crude oil. Uh, th this is actually... Um, I mean, this is exciting, I think, for me for two reasons, right? Even though I'm not the technician, you are. But, you know, we were just hovering right on top of that 200-day moving average for a few days, and it could have gone either way. I think we used the phrase like technical no man's land at one point a couple of weeks ago. And now here we are with a really nice cushion. Um, at last check, we were up a little bit uh, today uh, on the S&P as well. This was an intraday chart. So We've got a nice cushion above the 200-day moving average, but also have the um, December, um, you know, December lows indicator, which we'll get to more in a bit. So I look at this chart. I mean, you mentioned the good breadth, Adam. I think, you know, this this looks fairly positive to me. We're not, um, you know, so naive as to think that there can't be some sort of 
you know, fundamental challenge that gets in the way here. We know that, um, you know, economic growth is slowing, inflation is still a problem, and the banking system is clearly still a little bit fragile. But just from the technical perspective, this looks pretty good to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big question that investors are asking is really, is this another bear market rally this year? The technical evidence right now suggests the answer to that is no. You know, right now we're we're back above the 200-day moving average, as you noted. We did bounce right around those December lows earlier this month when we did get some weakness related to the banking uh, turmoil. But I think it's notable to see that buyers are actually stepping in and buying the dip this year, opposed to last year, it was the complete opposite, where it was sell the rip type of mentality. So we're seeing a change, I think, in terms of sentiment among um, investors right now, where they are stepping up and buying the S&P 500 on these pullbacks. Clearly, that 200-day moving average is a level that we're watching closely. If we do get some follow-through buying this week, the, the next key level that we're watching is uh, 40.14. That's the 50-day moving average hanging right overhead. If we get above that 50-day moving average, that would also place the S&P 500 back above its uptrend off those October lows. So a pretty constructive move if we can get there. In terms of, of downside, you still have the 200-day the level there we're watching is 39.32. The, the big level, if we get um, any, any type of uh, downside, would be the Mar or the December lows at 37.83. I think that's really going to be key to this recovery narrative. Um, so so far, like you said, we do have a pretty good cushion there. When we look underneath the surface, you know, the recent selling pressure has damaged market breadth. You know, there's less than half the S&P 500 stocks are above their 200-day moving average, but we are seeing an improvement in overall momentum. We did get a buy signal in the MACD indicator last week. So some pretty constructive signs in terms of momentum shifting the other way now. Excellent. I like it when our uh, our views of charts line up. Uh, so, um, you know, you can't talk about the stock market right now without talking about the bank. So we almost feel like it's an obligatory credit default swap mention in this environment, giving me, um, you know, some uh, flashbacks to uh, 2008. But the good news is, uh, when you look at credit default swaps, which are um, essentially insurance policies against an issuer default, right? The cost of those policies, those insurance policies for banks have risen. You can see that in this chart, got that spike all the way to the right. Um, Adam, thank you for making this chart. But the, the good news is you look back at, well, even to 2020, but more importantly, 2008 and even 2011, the whole you know, Greek slash European debt crisis. Um, these U.S. bank credit default swap prices were quite a bit higher. So it's stress, but it's not, you know, anything close to uh, a 2008, which is good news. Anything to add there, Adam? You're watching these closely. Yeah, we watch them closely. And I think you nailed it. We're not at those crisis era levels. Certainly it does suggest there's some risk in the market, but again, not... Not anything like uh, 2008, 2009, when you know you couldn't get Lehman Brothers to finish your trade on the other end. Which I remember that one when I was on a fixed income desk, and it was I was trying to figure out what CDS levels were back then. So certainly a different different feel this time than than back then for me at least. Yeah, you're you're a pretty young guy still. So yeah, you were certainly pretty young back then. Uh, I'll certainly never forget. Uh, 
going through 2008. This is this is just very different from you know based on the picture you're seeing uh, in front of you with the CDS, but it's also different because we're talking about treasuries and interest rate risk rather than credit risk, right? And then the system isn't as leveraged as it used to be, uh, so not even close, right? And that's why the banking system has generally held up well, and and people. I mean, you know, aren't concerned about these systemically important banks. We're still concerned about, you know, some of the smaller banks that clearly are challenged. But as we'll get to in a minute, it, a lot of the problems are more around individual bank mismanagement, um, you know, as opposed to any sort of broad systemic crisis. So while the market waits to, you know, get more information and, uh, you know, ascertain what banks have more risk, um, you know, that they should be worried about, Markets are going to be a little bit jittery, but we actually think we can move through this fairly quickly. Um, and uh, you know, maybe first quarter earnings season is is the marker. Um, we'll 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 wait and see. So we'll keep watching these. You know, equity analysts become fixed income analysts during times of stress. So um, you know, I guess Lawrence, make room for us. We're we're, we're joining <laughs> your team. <laughs> so uh, let's go to this uh, promo of the weekly market commentary. Who's to blame? Uh, you know, people like to blame somebody. Right. I think you've even seen, um, you know, politicians blame Jay, Jay Powell, right? The Fed chair. You've seen um, a lot of people blame um, Silicon Valley Bank management, right? So the question we pose and we cover in this in this weekly commentary is, you know, whose fault is it? Um, you know, I would certainly argue the bank regulators have a lot of fault here. But frankly, I think Silicon Valley Bank management probably deserves more blame uh, for this. The the mismanagement was, uh, it was really an outlier. I'll just say it like that. And this is good, right? This is this should give us comfort that there aren't a whole lot more Silicon Valley Bank um, problems out there, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Um Right here, you know, making the point that you know the VC flows, the VC related deposits weren't sticky, so they left very quickly. They had a very small, concentrated customer base with huge amounts of uninsured deposits. Um, that on top of the fact that they mismanaged their balance sheet, it, it was really like a perfect storm, and it's not it's not being repeated uh, much. You know, we've had a couple other banks fail. We'll probably have um, a few more here and there. Hopefully, they'll be very small. But the situation looks contained based on the actions of the regulators, the FDIC, uh, the Fed, and the Treasury. So, um, you know, I think that's where most of the blame lies. The bank regulators clearly missed something. But you also have um, fiscal policy, right? We have this inflationary environment that created the need for the Fed to, at, at one point, the market saw 575, right? Saw another three more hikes beyond where we are today. And the, the inverted yield curve and all of that created the conditions. The extreme interest rate volatility helped create the conditions for this as well. So um, there's a lot of blame uh, to go around. But, um, you know, I guess if I had to rank these, <laughs> I might put Silicon Valley Bank Management first, bank regulators second. Uh, but it's 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 more than that. What do you think, Adam? How would you how would you yeah, rank these? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair rank order. I think it's interesting, too, just to think about if they had a proper hedge or if they understood duration risk, you know, let's just theoretically say they had T-bills in their, in their, on their balance sheet. I don't know if we'd be talking about it today because there'd be more liquidity and 
and less duration risk. So I think the fact that it's not a credit event um, certainly helps the market in terms of you know getting back and some of that confidence in the banking system. Yeah, just just knowing that this is a very unique situation uh, should be comforting to uh, investors out there. So, yeah, hopefully we can stop talking about this stuff soon. But uh, for right now, um, you know, the LPR Research um, Asset Allocation Committee is very comfortable uh, with where we're at, and um, you know, still generally constructive on the markets. We in the weekly commentary we did put a, a small cap chart on here uh, just to. Uh, make the point that, you know, there was a little bit of spillover into the broad market, at least the broad small cap market. Because remember, small caps have a lot more banks than large cap indexes do. So in particular, the Russell 2000 uh, has about 8% banks and the S&P 500 is more like four. So you're going to get more uh, weakness in small. Uh, you're also going to see more weakness in small around credit stress. You know, even though we really don't have a credit event necessarily um you know again not anything like 2008 it's still going to increase the cost of credit and banks are going to pull back a little bit on their lending and that tends to be an environment where small caps uh, underperform as well but coming into this um period of, of bank stress small cap stocks just looked too cheap uh to us so we've continued to recommend them uh on that valuation discount and then the potential that if the overall market moves higher, small caps could do a little bit better uh, than large caps. That's generally the pattern. So, uh, you know, the sell-offs disappointing certainly here, but um, we're not necessarily telling folks to sell small caps. Um, how do the technicals look to you, Adam, on, on, on small? I mean, they've been obviously as a result of this um, this weakness recently, the, the charts have suffered some, some damage. What should investors yeah, be watching? Certainly, for? certainly some technical damage on, for example, the the Russell two thousand. Similar to the S and P, though, we did not take out those December lows. It was pretty notable that that's really where buyers stepped in almost to the penny and started buying small caps again. So we did get a bounce off that level, and you know we're starting to see some of the momentum change. I did see the Russell having a pretty good day today. So we're getting a, a bit of a relief rally off some of those oversold levels um, just over the last couple of days here. Yeah, the, the banks are um, are up nicely today. Um, it was partly just the fact that we didn't have any more headlines over the weekend, <laughs> right? Yeah. No news is good news. Exactly. Probably appropriate there. Um, but, uh, you know, there have been some reports of additional actions that regulators could take uh, to kind of ring fence this risk. So. Oh, and then Silicon Valley Bank was able to sell, or the FDIC essentially was able to uh, sell a lot of the SVB assets. Um, so kind of getting that out of the way, I think, was viewed positively uh, as well. So, um, um, you know, certainly strong banks are helping small caps. So um, here's your section, Adam. I, I made you wait, what, about almost 20 minutes to get to your section. So uh, you you take it away and you just tell me when to flip the chart, but I, I tell you, this is, we showed this before, but this is a powerful study here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say you're, you're saving the best for last, right? There so, you go. And, and I think this one's timely just considering we're wrapping up March and, and really the, the first quarter here at the end of the week. So as a quick backdrop on the December lows, this is a, a technical indicator that goes back to the 1970s. It was created by a Forbes analyst or a writer 
named Lucien Hooper. And he basically made the observation that whenever the S&P 500 breaks below its December low in the first quarter of the following year, it's a pretty bearish sign for equity markets. On the flip side, if it does hold above that December low, it's a pretty bullish sign for equity markets. And that's really what this table is showing us. You can see the, the quarter over quarter performance for years um, bifurcated between if it's above or below those December lows. And it's a pretty contrasting story here when the average annual return, um, when you hold above those December lows, it's 18.5% compared to when you break the December lows and you get a bearish sign on that December lows indicator, you're pretty much flat. Um, I think the average is 0.4%. And what's even more notable is the percent um, of returns that are positive. So 94% of the time the year finishes higher on the S&P 500, that is, if you hold the December low. So a pretty constructive sign. Um, right now, we're above that, that level. Um, 3783 is the number to watch if we start getting a sell-off this week. But right now, I don't want to jinx it, but it looks like we're going to hold above those December lows. So some pretty good seasonal data as we look ahead for the remaining quarters on the year. Yeah, it, it would take a powerful negative catalyst to um, get us down that much uh, this week. Possible, uh, but certainly unlikely. And then I know you updated this chart, Adam, the um, the path of the S&P 500 under these either bullish or bearish scenarios. And um, wow, if you break higher, I mean, that's that's a pretty solid path. Yeah, it's an average path, but a solid yeah, path. Exactly. It's it's pretty pretty constructive if you if we can hold above those December lows. Um, you know, you get this acceleration in the first quarter. It starts to taper off a little, but you can clearly see that the trend is higher for the remainder of the year. Um, I, in the blue or the bright blue, that's this year in terms of where we're at for the market. And you can see that acceleration in January. We've tapered off a little bit since then, but certainly um, the December lows indicator does suggest, uh, at least historically, that we could see the path of least resistance move higher. And I thought it was also notable if we do break the December lows in Q1, it's not necessarily a sell signal. You really kind of consolidate for most of the year, at least based on the average progression. And I'd also note that the low of the year tends to take place in, in late March. So that would that would be at least one constructive sign if we do break the lows. Maybe that would be the low for the year. Um, you know, you're pretty much flat, flat for the remainder of the year based on that indicator. Yeah, you, you do smooth out the volatility when you average a whole bunch of years together. But, yeah, uh, of course. There's that asterisk you know, too. Yeah, there's dispersion in there. But nonetheless, it, it's a it's a powerful pattern. And um, you know, this is one of a number of reasons why we would be careful about being too bearish here, right? And we actually have slightly above uh benchmark equity uh, allocations in, in our uh you know our official tactical asset allocation model. So yeah. um thanks thanks for that, Adam. And it certainly joins a, a long list of bullish seasonals that we've flagged, whether it's the trifecta, the third year of a presidential cycle, you know, years that follow a down year. I mean, they're all kind of pointing to above average returns for the S&P 500. But and then here we're looking at the financials. This has clearly been kind of the, the chart of the last couple of weeks as investors are really trying to figure out if. The financial sector um, or the regional banks have found a bottom. This is actually looking at the KBWB regional bank index um, just over the last, uh, this goes back to 2018, actually. A 
couple of things that I wanted to highlight um, just in terms of the technical setup before this banking turmoil. And you really can see a head and shoulders top formation. I didn't flag it just to keep the chart simple, but there were some technical signals um, coming into this event that are that are pretty timely. And right when we broke the the neckline of that that chart formation that goes back to the the summer lows on that index, you know that's kind of when this all came unraveled. So kind of a a plug for technical analysis here. But nonetheless, we are holding up above the 2018 lows. The key support level there is 8450. I think that's a, a constructive sign that we're not breaking below that level. So that would be the the key level to watch. Um, if we did break below that, there'd be certainly some downside risk um, that, that would open the door for a potential retest of the 2020 lows, kind of in this $55 to $60 range. So definitely some material downside if we start moving lower. Um, but clearly conditions were, were way oversold. On the S&P 500, you had nearly three quarters of stocks or financial sector stocks, that is, um, with an RSI reading of 30 or less. That's the technical threshold for oversold. That's historically high and really commensurate with other major bottoms on the financial sector. Um, so some signs that maybe this, this could be the bottom, but certainly not ready to make that call on the technical side here. Still looking for, for more evidence. We haven't really seen a change in momentum on the bottom panel of this chart. That's the MACD indicator, which is a, a momentum indicator that we like to use oversold, but haven't had that inflection point yet. So something we're watching for. And then in terms of overall breadth within the regional banks, it's it's pretty washed out, but we haven't seen any real notable improvements. The middle panel is just looking at the percentage of regional banks that are above their 200-day moving average. And you're at 2% right now, which is a pretty bearish sign in terms of overall breadth. So not quite ready to, to make the call yet on this one being a bottom. Certainly, uh, holding above support is is one of the constructive signs here. But I think, as, as we've highlighted, you know, the probably the more tactical way to play this is with preferreds. Um, that helps you avoid some of the risk from direct equity exposure. And I think the the yield environment there looks uh, pretty constructive as well. Yeah, absolutely. Preferreds uh, within fixed income, attractive valuations, and you know, less risk than going equities. Uh, but I will say that, you know, on the equity side, the regional bank valuations look pretty enticing. So, uh, you know, there could be an opportunity forming here, but we're just taking more of a wait and see uh, uh, approach. I mean, you don't often see banks, quality banks, I would say, trading near their uh, tangible book value. So uh, it's something to watch um, for for active traders um, who could find the, the babies that have been thrown out with the bathwater. Um, certainly. Um, Decent amount of upside here if, if this is a flush, you know, and the uh, the, the sentiment is as, as bearish as it's going to get. Um, so um, I teased this earlier, Adam, the dollar. Um, this is, um, you know, an interesting looking chart. You know, it, it, it tells me this thing's going lower. Is that is that your yeah, view here? And if so, how much Absolutely. Lower? So we've, we've watched this kind of relief rally in the dollar just over the last few few months, we'll call it fade right into overhead resistance. And that's kind of where relief rallies go to die is that downtrends or prior overhead resistance. And that's exactly what's playing out here on the greenback. Um, you can see a bounce back to this kind of 105 area. And now we're just starting to slip below 103. 
um, which goes back to your 2020 highs. So I think that does open the door here for more downside in the dollar. You know, your your next major support level is going to be just around um, 100. Uh, 0.75 on the dollar. And then when you look at momentum, just going back to that MACD indicator here, you've you've rolled over into a sell signal. So you get more confirmation of downside pressure on the dollar in terms of momentum. And then lastly, on the bottom panel, um, I think it's important to note just the negative correlation between the dollar and S&P 500. It is getting closer to positive territory, but you know historically that's a negative correlation. So as the dollar moves lower, that should help support U.S. equity markets. And I think really the earnings picture, as you've noted before, and then also when you apply this to some of the other negatively correlated um, asset classes, certainly gold-related gold investments would be a beneficiary here. They've been acting pretty well um, when you're looking at what's happening with gold markets. So something to watch here if we get some follow-through selling on the dollar. Yeah, it could help international investments too. You know, we're we're pretty much always advocate advocates of globally diversified portfolios, but that's been a very tough place to be in recent years until until now, right? Just the last few months, uh, internationals really helped uh, portfolios, and um, you know, if this dollar move continues to the downside, you're going to see uh, better returns in in Europe, which continues to be resilient economically uh, despite the. Uh, the ongoing challenges of the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. So uh, it's nice, just like, you know, it's nice to finally get some help from bonds after we didn't last year. It's nice to get some help from international equities as well, which are, of course, um, inversely correlated to, to the dollar. So glad you highlighted that, uh, Adam. That's um, that's an important um, chart to watch. So let's preview the week real quick. I mean, it's really a quick preview, Adam, because all I really care about is the PCE and, and consumer confidence. Um, although I did highlight University of Michigan, because those inflation expectation surveys are interesting. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the core PCE is the Fed's preferred inflation measure. That's, I think, going to get the most um, attention. 4.7% is consensus year over year on the core, excluding food and energy. The services inflation is still stubbornly sticky. So it's, you know, going to take some time for that to come down. But, you know, Dr. Roach, our uh, chief economist, thinks it'll be in the threes, hopefully mid threes uh, by the end of the year. So uh, I don't know, other than that, anything else um, you'd be watching this week, Adam? No, I mean, maybe some of the housing data as well. I was trying to, you know, gauge inflection points with that. We're certainly seeing some improvements, whether it's home builder sentiment, building permits. You know, this week we have a, some some housing data that will hit hit the tape. But I, I think going back to your point, it's really going to be all about the, the PCE and inflation. So going to be the, the market mover, I think, for the week. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit lagged because we've already seen the CPI and the PPI, but uh, nonetheless, a big, big attention getter. Um, we also get um, some more basketball pretty soon. So I'm going to end with this, with the good luck mom, because um, my mother did a pool, a March Madness pool with like a thousand people in it. She's a, she's a college basketball fan and she is first right Whoa. now. That's awesome. And uh, she needs UConn. So she actually had Miami, UConn, and Creighton as three of the 14. Now, Creighton didn't make it, but but they were close, and she got those points for the Elite Eight appearance. And then nobody had Florida Atlantic. So if UConn wins, 
or UConn loses to Florida Atlantic in the final, then uh, my mother wins that pool, which would be pretty, pretty awesome. I've done this pool since college. I don't want to admit how many years that's been, but it's been a very, very long time. And I actually won it once before when UConn won. So this could be a repeat within the family. So go UConn, go mom. I'm so glad I have some reason to care because my two teams got bounced early, which was very depressing. <laughs> what do you think, Adam? Who are you rooting for? I had Marquette going quite a ways. And I'm I'm more of a hockey guy, so I just took the homer from, you know, Wisconsin and went with Marquette. And my bracket got busted pretty early. So I'll go with uh, UConn. I'll, I'll join the join your your moms here and, and root for them. So that would be pretty cool. Kind of a That's dynasty. Cool. I yes. guess that would make a dynasty then, right? Bookbinder dynasty to win two. Actually, my brother's father-in-law won this pool too once in the last. You guys are going to get kicked out of here pretty 15 soon. years. Yeah. It, we don't fill out 400 entries. <laughs> I, I can promise you that, but that's just really cool. So uh, yeah, awesome. hopefully mom can, can pull this out because uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of entries in this thing. This thing's been going for over 30 years. So um, I'll end with that. Thanks Adam for joining. Um, thanks everybody for, for tuning in. Really fun to to do this for you every week. We'll be back next week, of course, as we pretty much always are uh, every week with uh, a special guest, right? If you're not on every week, you're a special guest. So I don't know who it'll be, but um, hope those folks traveling uh, probably give you the week off next week, uh, Adam, when they're when they're back. So uh, everybody have a, a wonderful week, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Market LPL Market Signals. This material was provided by LPL Financial, is for general information only, and is not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. There is no assurance that the views or strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Any economic forecasts set forth in the podcast may not develop as predicted and are subject to change. References to markets, asset classes, and sectors are generally regarding the corresponding market index. All indexes are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Index performance is not indicative of the performance of any investment. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and broker-dealer, member FINRA and SIPC insurance products are offered through LPL or its licensed affiliates. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered investment advisor that is not an LPL affiliate, please note LPL makes no representation with respect to such entity. If your financial professional is located at a bank or credit union, please note that the bank or credit union is not registered as a broker-dealer or investment advisor. These products and services are being offered through LPL or its affiliates, which are separate entities from and not affiliates of the bank or credit union. Securities insurance offered through LPL or its affiliates are not insured by the FDIC or NCUA or any government agency, not bank or credit union guaranteed, not bank or credit union deposit or obligations, and may lose value.